All right. Paul's analogy. One of the regrets I had, I always regret not being here on Sunday morning. I regret if I miss worship. I regret if I miss you guys. Y'all are friends and family to me, and I really miss being here. But I especially regret not being able to share whatever it is that was in the lesson that week. And I don't know how Jared did it because I wasn't able to watch. We were in the middle of flying back at the time. Hello. We were in the middle of flying back at the time, and uh, so uh, I wasn't able to watch. But he got one of my favorite verses in the Bible. So what I'm doing is backing up just a little bit so that I can say something about one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And then we'll get running. Can we go to the Elmo real quick? This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I have a different Bible. It's not going to fit so well on the screen. I'm sorry about that. I'm hoping you can still see it from wherever you're seated. Um, yeah, Steve, if you don't mind, can I write on it, please? Thank you. Um, uh, I appreciate this. This is just a tremendous verse, and, and it's, it's a verse that everybody ought to memorize and put in their hearts and in their minds. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And it's so late, maybe Jared didn't spend much time on it. And we all, believers, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. Iconos in the Greek. We get the word icon from it. The same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And we with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's my life dream and goal. I came across that verse when I was a 19-year-old boy going to church at the Belmont Church in uh, Belmont uh, Church in Nashville, Tennessee. And somebody got up and they started singing this song that they had written. And it was that verse. And I liked the song, I didn't understand that it was a verse out of the Bible. My Second Corinthians was, was uh, not as strong as other parts of the Bible. And then I was taking Corinthians in Greek class. So I hit the point where we were translating it. And I was like, that's the song. I love that verse. Let me tell you why. If we go back to the PowerPoint. Paul has put together an analogy In chapter 3 and chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, Paul is saying, you, your life is like a letter. It's like a what's been going on letter. Most people today don't write letters, they write emails. But we all know a what's been going on letter. In email, modern day parlance, it might be your Facebook status or your Twitter, but this is not limited to a certain number of words. And what Paul is saying is, is you are God's letter that God is writing. His spirit is writing a letter on you. It's, 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 
it's a contrast between what God did with Moses in the Ten Commandments and what God is doing today in yours and my lives. See, under the Old Covenant and the Ten Commandments, what God did is He wrote on a stone. And He wrote on these tablets... But the, the, the Ten Commandments that he gave, in fact, all of the law that he gave, what it really functioned to do was it, it displayed sin. It told you what you were doing was inadequate and wrong and, and, and that, that you don't measure up to God. Paul says in Romans, one of the main reasons God did it was to drive us to the need For God's mercy. Because when we understand how inadequate we are before God. When we understand how we don't measure up. What his level of perfection is. Then it should drive us to our knees. Seeking his mercy. So Paul says that's what the old covenant that God wrote on the stone did. And Moses beheld the glory of the Lord as the Lord did this. And when Moses brought the tablets down, his face shone so brightly as he reflected what he saw. And there's a a pun that Paul uses here in a minute that we'll get to. But but Moses' face shone so brightly as a reflection... Of the Lord that Moses had to wear a veil because the people could not look upon his face. And then Paul says, so, so that, that, that law brought a measure of isolation. It isolated Moses who beheld the glory of God from the people. We supplemented with readings from Nehemiah where the law itself separated the people from everyone else. Because the the law just drove a wedge of separation. Now, the reason I said Paul has a pun here, if we go back to the the notes for a moment and go back to my, my favorite verse, we, with an unveiled face, we have beheld the glory of the Lord. We have beheld katatridzo in the Greek. And translators wonder, how should we use this word? But, but there is, because the word can mean you behold something, but it can also mean you reflect something, you mirror something. And so the English Standard Version translates it, behold. And I think that's mainly what Paul means. But Paul has a pun built into his word that we want to grab because we are studying the word on steroids in this class. Here's the pun. The pun is the idea of mirroring. Because that word can mean mirroring. In, in other words, like looking in a mirror. Moses was reflecting the glory of God. His face shone so bright he had to wear a veil because he, re, he it was not that Moses was such a bright fella. It's that Moses was, his countenance was changed and altered as he reflected the glory of God. And so Paul is saying, we all 
with an unveiled face are beholding the glory of God, but we're also reflecting the glory of God. As we're transformed into the same icon, the same image, one one degree of glory to another. It's not a poof, you look like Jesus. It's little by little, every day, little by little in every way. My God is changing me. He's changing me. See? So, so that's what Paul's doing. So if we go back to the PowerPoint, beholding the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This is the letter that's being written into your life. Unlike the old covenant, under the new covenant, God's not writing it in stone. He's writing it in your hearts. He's writing it on you and me. The finger of God, the spirit of God is changing who you are. He's talking to you. He's calling you into something deeper. He's calling you into a transformation. He's calling you into experiencing this life with his finger upon your life. And this that he's writing in your heart, it's not about your sin and inadequacy. It's about his mercy and his light. So many of us don't want to be close to God because we've got all this sin and we're aware of our sin and we're thinking, well, I can't really. I mean, I knew it and I'd still sin. Yes, it's true for everyone in here. Don't ever let your sin keep you distant from God. Let your sin call upon God's mercy and say, God, I just don't have it. But I want it. Would it come from you? Would you write your letter upon my heart? Would you please make these changes that just don't seem to be able to come from myself? I want to be more like Jesus and let his light shine into that darkness that's within us. See, that's the nature of the change. It's little by little. It's from one degree of glory to another, to another. Oh, don't we wish God could snap his fingers and we just didn't need him anymore because we were perfect. That's not happening. And so the honest appraisal for each of us needs to be one of, okay, he's calling me into something deeper. He's calling me... I. It's time. It's time to make that change. Or it's time to make that change. Or it's time to make that change. And by the power of God, I'm here to make it. Then we don't wear a veil. If people are not beholding the glory of God, the veil is being worn worn by those people. Make sense? Because we're reflecting it. We're reflecting the glory of God. We're on the Moses side of the veil. We are beholding God, writing his letter into our hearts. God is, you know, Moses was not a made up guy. That was history. And Paul is saying, you and I are being written into God's history. Did you know? Of course you did. That there's no one in God's kingdom who is a nobody. Whether Steve Taylor 
knows your name or not, whether I know your name or not, is really irrelevant. Whether you know my name or not is really irrelevant. Because God has each name. And God is writing history with each one of his children's lives. Just as much as he did with Moses and that rock. And that's Paul's story. So the key takeaway from this segment of reading... History is being written every day as we live to God's glory. And you are part of that history. God's writing his letter, his what's going on. You are God's Twitter for the day. You are his, I need Sarah to come up here and tell me the right words. You're his Instagram picture that, that he likes. All right, next passage. Paul says, let's look at a little reading of it first, and then we'll get into my, my notes off the PowerPoint. So Paul then transforms from this, or, 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 or continues in this vein of thought, I should say, with therefore, because of, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. Paul is writing for himself and Timothy and his others. We've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning. We refuse to tamper with God's word. We just simply state the truth. We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Time out for a moment. Because I am in trial, so while this plate of this class is spinning, I readily confess to you, I have a plate spinning over in this part of my uh, schizophrenic brain about what I've got to do with Dr. Malkow when he gets here to Dallas at 4 o'clock today. One of the things that stuns lawyers when I speak to them, trial lawyers who do what I do, whether they're on the plaintiff side where I generally sit or whether they're on the defense side, one of the things that stuns them is when they ask me, what is the secret to how you do things? My answer floors them. You ready for this? It's my secret. Y'all watch this on video? Anybody watching on video? Another lawyer? Watch this. Here's my secret. I try really hard to tell the truth. It's a shocker. The other side's shocked. The judge is shocked. And the jury's shocked. I have zero qualms. Zero qualms. Standing up and saying, here's the stuff that, that, that is really, really good for my case. Here's the stuff that's really bad for my case. And here's how I fit it all together. Because most lawyers, they ignore the stuff that's bad for their case and they just present the good stuff with the idea that one side does the good stuff, the other side does their good stuff, and the jury will figure out which is the real good stuff. But I'm sitting there thinking, well, I know their stuff just like mine, so I'm just going to talk about all of it. I'm not going to take one sentence out of a document that supports my position and ignore the very next sentence which guts my position. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to say, here it is. This is what Paul is about here. He's saying, by the open statement, except he's doing something 
very, very, very much more riveting than trying a lawsuit. And don't get me wrong, God cares about justice. But Paul is doing something. He's caring about people's souls. And he's same principle, though. Open statement of the truth. We refuse to practice cunning. We're not going to tamper with God's word. We're going to openly speak the truth. We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. They've just blinded their eyes. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the icon of God. Not Jesus is becoming, we're becoming the icon of God. Jesus already is. Jesus is a representation of God because he is God. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. God said, let your light shine. And then verse 7, here's the image. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now, you may be wondering what this means. And I, I was toying, do I show you the picture and then read it or read it and show you the picture? I'm going to read it first, see how you get this. We have this treasure, this treasure of truth, this treasure of Christ, the icon of God, this light that shines in the darkness. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so the life of Jesus is also manifested in our bodies. Now, if we go back to the PowerPoint for a moment. So what do we have here? He says this gospel treasure, this good news about Jesus, we carry it in jars of clay. I've put a picture up here of what is called an amphora. A-M-P-H-O-R-A. An amphora. Amphoras were the two, uh, um, let's see, uh, paper or plastic? Uh, no, better yet, uh, you, you go get a, a gallon of milk and it's in one of those plastic containers or you get you a two liter bottle of Diet Dr. Pepper and you get that plastic bottle. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, they didn't have those back then. The, their plastic was an amphora or a smaller jar. They'd put wine in it. That's how they'd carry wine. They'd put olives in it. That's how they'd brine their olives and keep them and carry them. Ships would have loaded up amphoras. Carts would be loaded up with amphoras. This is how they transported things. If you go to the shores of Caesarea... 
right now and you stand there on the Mediterranean, you'll see some shells and you'll see some sand and you'll see some rocks. And if you walk carefully, you'll see broken shards of ancient amphoras. They're all over the place. I that this I'll guarantee you if the world's still here in 2,000 years, you'll be able to walk around and find some of the plastic two-liter bottles of Diet Dr. Pepper. The amphoras were breakable, but they were pretty sturdy. We've got a sample one in the library, an ancient sample. If y'all do when the library's open, and I don't know when it's open or whatever, but sometime look at it. And Paul says, Paul says, that's what we are. We carry the most precious gospel treasure. The most precious thing that humanity could ever know or understand is being toted around in an everyday jar of clay, an amphora. And, and so as a result, Paul says, you know, we just get tossed around. We get beaten when broken. We get discarded, but not forgotten. We get uh, 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 persecuted, chipped, but we're not forsaken. We're not destroyed. We're afflicted in every way, but we're hanging in there. Because we're carrying the body of Jesus. The death of Jesus is being carried in our body. And, and you know, in the grand scheme of things, what happened to Jesus really wasn't fair. We think, get out of ourselves for a moment and let's put ourselves in Jesus' shoes. What happened to Jesus really isn't that fair. I mean, what did he do? What did he do to deserve what happened to him? He loved those. He was praying for his persecutors from the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But Jesus suffered, and what happened to him suffered, to bring the glory of God to a lost people. And Paul's carrying around that treasure in his body that's being afflicted, persecuted, crushed, beaten. Bad things are happening to Paul, who's only trying to do good things with his body. Because Paul is this amphora that people don't buy the jar of wine for the jar. Okay? You can go to wet restaurants today. And if it's the right kind of restaurant, you can see a wine bottle. And it's got like a candle in it. And it's got wax that's dripped all over it. Because the restaurant thinks it's uh, atmosphere. But nobody buys the bottle of wine for the bottle. (gasps) There's a bottle of wine. How much is it? I really like that bottle. Oh, that's $50. That must be a really nice bottle. 
here, here's my 50 bucks. Can I have that? Take the cork out or whatever you do. Hang it out. Pour out that wine so I can get this bottle. Stick a candle in it. I love that bottle. What $200 bottle of wine? <whistles> Must be a great bottle. Let me buy it. Here's 200 bucks. Take the cork out. Pour out that wine. Whoa, put a really nice candle in that one. That's an expensive bottle. No, the bottle wasn't what was valuable. It's what's inside. And Paul said, I'm not the valuable thing. It's what's inside. It's the treasure that I'm carrying. And so it's a wonderful thing. And so Paul's getting beat up. But Paul really isn't that worried about it. Now, here was the question from the reading of this. How do we see the world's mess? How do we see when bad things happen to good people? How do we see the Middle East right now? When ISIS is uh, uh, basically destroying Christianity and Iraq, which has been there for 2,000 years. When people are being stripped of their business, stripped of their homes, stripped of their lives, having their children killed because they refuse to convert to Islam. How do we explain that? Well, maybe what we do is we put on blinders and we don't think about it. Because it's not happening to us. But it's happening to our brothers and sisters in the Lord. How do we explain when a parent loses a child? Because it's supposed to be the other way around. I've told my children, none of you are allowed to die before me. It is not right. It is not fair. I'm supposed to get to go first. You have to figure out how to bury me. No parent should have to figure out how to bury their child. Right, Helen? It's not fair. It's not right. How do we see the mess of the world? How do you see the mess when you're doing the best you can and you still get slapped silly by the facts of life? When you're trying your hardest and your hardest just doesn't seem good enough. How do you see this mess of the world and the way it abuses you, the way it abuses me, the way it abuses our friends, our families, our loved ones, and, and other brothers and sisters we don't even know? Paul says, we're a bunch of amphoras. And we get slapped around and we get knocked around because what really counts is the message of the gospel treasure we're carrying. And that message is about the death of Jesus. And he got slapped around and he got beaten around and he got abused and he got royally ripped off of the pleasures and joys of this world because he was living for something beyond this world. And if you're looking at it from the world's perspective, you don't get it. But as Lori said, if you're looking at it with God's chokhmah in the Hebrew, God's wisdom, Sophia in the Greek, if you're looking at it from God's perspective, this is not supposed to be paradise. We got kicked out of that place. We live in thorns and thistles awaiting paradise where we rejoin our maker in a unity that can only be found through Jesus Christ. That's the gospel message. That's the real message. And everything else, folks, is illusion. It's the fake illusion of this world. 
And those things that you think will make you feel good, they're illusion. You can live for this world and you can live for your flesh, but it's really not permanent. You just bought into something that's, that's temporary and fake. And so the gospel message is one that draws us out. I put in there Job 4 and 5. Is this karma? Job's friend thought it was karma. Job's friend says to Job, you know why this is happening to you? It's because you didn't follow your own advice. You used to tell everybody, live right and God will take care of you. Well, you didn't live right. And so now you are stuck in misery. Karma. Then in addition to that, I put in Ecclesiastes 1 1 and 2. Hevel. 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 The, the, The translators struggle with that Hebrew word. It literally means if you're on a cold day and you breathe, you see your breath, that that hot breath on a cold day, you know, the mist that goes like that, that's hevel. So they'll translate it vapor. They'll translate it uh, uh, nothingness, meaninglessness. But Ecclesiastes is written under the sun, not from God's perspective, not from that wisdom not seeing the world as God sees it, but seeing it from under the sun. And the writer of Ecclesiastes just says, Hevel, Hevel, everything's Hevel. It's all meaningless. It's all just a vapor. You just let out a hot breath on a cold day, and yeah, you see it for a moment, and it is gone. And that's what life is. Life is just not meaningful. And if you're looking at life under the sun, Ecclesiastes is dead on. Without the Lord Jesus and an afterlife, he's dead on. I was interviewed the other day and I was asked uh, uh, on a radio show or something, I was asked a, a, a question about, you know, why is the resurrection of Jesus important? I said, if Christianity is only for this life, it's a joke. The resurrection of Jesus is important because it tells me there is something beyond this life. If there's nothing beyond this life, guys, I'd love to stand up here and give you an inspirational speech. I'd love to stand up here and tell you a few jokes. I got some more stories I could tell you that would make you laugh. But... If that's all this life is about, I'd really rather go home and eat. (laughs) If this life is about nothing more than this life, I want to change my way of doing business. But I want to tell you fervently from my heart. That this life, based upon my 50 some odd years of living it, is viewed from the world. But viewed from God, I'm an amphora. And I'm carrying around a gospel treasure. 
and I want to give it to you. And I want you to get it. And I want you to carry it around. And I want you to give it to other people as well. Because that's what this world's about. There's an eternity on the other side of this world. And I can't wait to be there. And when bad things happen. And when your life is a wreck and your life is a mess. What we hold on to is not karma. It's not, oh gee, here it is. Life's meaningful. Or it has no meaning. What we hold on to is, hey, I'm carrying around the death of Jesus. He said to me, if anyone would come after me, take up their cross and follow me. He warned me there'd be stuff like this. Because I'm not living for this life. Man, I'm not living to be happy. I'm living in service to my God and King. And I'm going to follow where he leads me. And when I'm beaten up and when I'm knocked around, I'm going to praise the Lord in the midst of it. Not because it's fair. Not because it shows he doesn't love me. He's not being nice to me. Not because God's some arbitrary and capricious guy who seems to have a soft spot for some people, but a really tough spot for me. Not because I'm Tevya and Fiddler on the Roof. In the midst of the misery, God, I understand we're the chosen people. But every once in a while, couldn't you choose someone else? I'm going to do it because I'm carrying around his treasure. And when you have that misery in this life and that mess and you confront it, what you're able to do is say, as Paul said, you know, I'm an amphora. But I've got a treasure inside of me that I want to take out and I want to share. Because what's being done here is a reflection of the glory of God that these things can happen and I can keep going because I know who it is who's taking me through this. And so face to the wind, baby, not on my own, but by the strength of God, I will follow where he leads. And that's the difference in perspective. I want to strive to echo the suffering Savior. I want to glorify God my Father. If Jesus suffered and I'm following Him, then when bad things happen to me, I will praise the Lord and seek to be His servant in obedience through those bad things. Jesus could have called down 10,000 angels. He could have removed himself from the cross. He could have taken the hand off of the nail, snapped his fingers, and everybody turned into ashes. But he did not. He walked through it. He died in it because it was God's way of redeeming his people. I want to look at suffering different. Don't get me wrong. I still hate it. I don't want it. I want my life to be easy and carefree. But that's the immature me. I also want to be being transformed from one degree of glory to another into the image of Jesus. Now, we want to be in the image of Jesus. You got to remember the path he walked was not an easy path. Be in the image of Jesus. It's a whole different worldview when it comes to suffering. Well, we have a minute and a half. (laughs) What drove Paul? 
I got to tell you, this is a real question people need to address. Because Paul is either an absolute nut job. Seriously. He's either an absolute nut job. Or the Lord truly appeared to him and changed his life. He did a 180. He gave up money. He gave up power. He gave up prestige. He gave up family. He gave up so many things and took a role as a Namphora that got beaten up, that got robbed, that got lashed within the lash of his life, that got imprisoned over and over again, that got absolutely abused. He did all of that for the gospel message. Convinced that not only him, but 500 other people saw the resurrected Jesus. Now, Paul's either an absolute nut job or there's something real to this. I got an email from a lawyer in uh, Philadelphia, no, Philadelphia or New York. I don't know exactly where he is. He's both places. He said, hey, Lanier, I read your book. Um, uh, I was 13 when I decided there was no God. He says, I think you're right that, that the resurrection's the key. But I don't buy the Gospels. I just think they're really nice written books. So I got to rewrite my book now and explain that the Gospels are reliable. But part of me is going to email him back and say, hey, forget the Gospels. Look at Paul. Because you can't read Paul and think he's a nut job. He's too smart. He's too logical. He's too precise. You can, you can tell nut jobs. He's not one. So it's something that's real. Paul had a fear and he had an awe for the Lord. And it was that love of Jesus that drove him. Not only the love he had for Christ, but first and foremost, the love Christ had for him. It was what Christ had done for Paul that drove Paul. So that's our last takeaway. I want to focus on where I'm going to the glory of God. That's how I want to live my life. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to, to read the words that you've set down for us for generations and generations. To, to be blessed, Father, by the writings of Paul that only could have come out of his own personal walk of, of, of tough situations, of messes, of affliction, of suffering. And Father, you birthed out of that these letters, these verses, these sentences and ideas that, that minister to us. Not fair, Paul had to go through that for our glory and benefit. But Father, we are thankful. And when we suffer, Lord, help us to suffer to the glory of you. Help us to see this life as a chance to be an amphora for your message. Drive us, Lord, by your love. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.